This morning we're in John chapter 2, and, uh, and as you make your way there, as we continue through John chapter 2, really as we get into it, the big idea of our text today really comes down to belief. Um, it's been said what you believe inevitably influences how you behave. Uh, in other words, your belief determines what you worship and how you worship it, really, if you want to think about it in those terms. Um, and uh, the focus of our text today has to do with an event where Jesus goes to the temple on Passover and he cleanses the temple for the proper worship of God. Um, the temple was the key element of the Jewish faith because it represented the place where God dwelt. And uh, the temple that Jesus finds is, it's defiled. Rather than being a holy place of prayer and communion with God, um, it had been defiled and it had actually become a den of thieves. And really the point that Jesus is going to make clear in our text today is that Jesus is the true temple. And really, uh, the Bible teaches throughout the New Testament that if Christ dwells in, uh, in us, if we have been born again by the Spirit of God, then we too are the temple of God. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. He said, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So uh, that brings up a question I'd like to have sort of at the forefront of our thoughts as we begin our study through uh, John 2, verses uh, 13, uh, beginning in verse 13. Um, and the question is this, what's the condition of your temple? The temple of your heart, what's, what, what condition would Jesus find that in? Well, let's jump in. Uh, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money, and he overturned the tables. Jesus here is angry. You know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin. He said, uh, anger is never without a reason, but it's seldom with a good one. Um, and Jesus has a really good uh, reason for being anger, angry here. Uh, it's not a, uh, a burst of uncontrolled emotion. He takes the time to actually braid together a whip. He's consciously thinking about his actions and what they're going to be, uh, what they're going to be. You know, if, if, uh, if, you know, you look on the news and you look at our society and you see that anger is alive and well across our nation. And, uh, and unlike Jesus, uh, you know, the nasty tendency of the human sinful heart is that our anger quickly uh, turns into sinful action. Uh, but Jesus says that Jesus' action here, uh, not sinful in the least. Um, he, uh, he's very strategic about what he's doing, and we're going to see why. And uh, so he says to those who sold doves, take these things away. Verse 16, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. We're going to look at that in a minute, very significant. But Jesus here, the text begins, he's entered into uh, the city during the feast of Passover. 
uh, Passover, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the law required um, that every Jewish man was to attend three annual feasts in Jerusalem. And uh, so they were to, to go up to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Passover. They were to go up to attend the Feast of Pentecost. And as well, thirdly, to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 uh, commands, Each year every man in Israel must celebrate these three festivals, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, <clears throat> the Festival of Harvest, the Feast of Pentecost, uh, and the Festival of Shelters, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. On each of these occasions, all men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he chooses, but they must not appear before the Lord without a gift for him. That's very significant. It's going to factor into our text. And so Jesus, he observed three Passovers in his earthly ministry. This one is uh, the first. Now, we understand Passover today from a New Testament concept that it was a celebration commemorating the time when the, when the Israelites escaped from bondage in Egypt. God had directed Moses to go to Pharaoh and command him to let my people go. And what we see as we go through that story in Exodus is that Pharaoh steadfastly um, refused. He hardened his heart. He would not let the people go. Even though God had sent many plagues, Pharaoh would not let the people go. And so what the Lord did was he finally sent uh, the final plague, the angel of death, to come. And the angel of death was, uh, was going to kill the firstborn of every family. But um, the, the idea was that God wanted to protect his people from his coming wrath. And so God told Moses that they were to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, that they were to take the blood and anoint it on their doorposts of their home, and that when the angel of death came, if he saw that the, the, the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed, that he would pass over the, that particular house, uh, and he would not pour out his wrath on the occupants um, inside. Now, all this happened as an Old Testament picture to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's how that works. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as sinners, we, just like the Jews in Egypt, we are in bondage and in slavery to sin. And God, because he's holy and he's righteous, God has to judge sin. Um, and that judgment, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, ultimately, this speaks of an eternal death where God pours out his wrath on an unrepentant world and, and there is a, an eternal separation from God. But God, because he's a loving God, because he's a merciful God, because he desires that none should perish but that all should come to everlasting life, he has made a way that we can escape uh, his wrath. Uh, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the idea is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And this was John the Baptist's declaration of him back in our, our, the first chapter of John. Uh, we saw that a few weeks ago. He, seeing Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so Jesus came to be our perfect, unblemished sacrifice for sin. And all of this culminates in the city of Jerusalem. And so here now, Jesus has come in the season of Passover. He ascends to the temple, that temple that is built on the rock, in the place where Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac. Another, well, went to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then God provided the ram that was caught in the thicket as a substitution uh, for for that, that sacrifice, again, another picture pointing to Jesus Christ. And it was in that place that the people would come to meet with God. And they would gather in the various courts that surrounded the temple. And what they would do is that they would bring their sacrifices, as we read just a minute ago in Deuteronomy, they would bring their sacrifices so that they, like the Israelites in Egypt, could show that because of their sin they should die and that they're acknowledging that but that a substitute would be made and that the blood of the lamb would be shed to satisfy the wrath of God. And that would forgive us of our sins and it would cause these people to have their relationship with God to be reconciled. And again, all of this is intended to point the people to Jesus. So this was a, Passover was a huge holiday. There would have been a massive event, hundreds of thousands of people that were coming for the Passover celebration. And as they uh, would journey there, sometimes it would take days or weeks or even months for them to make this pilgrimage to the temple to, 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 to worship God. And uh, as they drew near the temple, they would start at the base of the mountain and they would undergo ritual washings and cleansing. And this would symbolize their, their need for God to cleanse them of their sin. And, and then they would robe themselves in white. And this showed that in God that they could be forgiven and that they could be made pure. And, and then they would ascend up to the temple. And as they would ascend, they would sing psalms of praise, uh, known as psalms of ascent. Um, and Psalm 130 is one of those. It's titled, A Song for Pilgrimage Ascending to for Pilgrims Ascending to Jerusalem. And here's how that goes. Now, we have the lyrics, we don't have the melody, but this was a song that they sang. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on Him. I have put my hope in His Word. I long for the Lord more than the centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He Himself will redeem Israel from every kind of of sin, And so they would cleanse themselves, they would robe themselves in white, they would sing these psalms of ascent, and then they would arrive at the temple to make their sacrifice. And as they arrived at the temple to make their sacrifice, some of them brought lambs with them, unblemished lambs that they intended to sacrifice. Others, because they would travel so far, or maybe circumstantially, they could not bring a lamb to sacrifice. But when they got to the temple, they would purchase an unblemished lamb for sacrifice. As well, they had to pay the temple tax. And so what these religious leaders there, you know, as they come up to perform these things, the priests are supposed to be there 
to help the people. They're supposed to be there to pray for the people, but instead of praying for the people and helping them, they were praying on the people, and they were making merchandise of them. And so if a person came and they had a, a, a sheep uh, to sacrifice, the priest would inspect that sheep, and inevitably, they'd find something wrong with it. Oh, you know, this thing's got a blemish. You can't sacrifice this. But you know what? We have one that you can buy. So here's what we'll do. We'll take this sheep off your hands, you know, and they'd pay him pennies on the dollar. We'll take this, this, this blemished sheep off your hands. We'll give you a good uh, lamb to purchase. Oh, okay, thank you. How much is that? Wow, that much? Okay. And then they would go to pay it, and they say, oh, wait a minute. Your money's no good here because it's, it, it, it's, it's not temple money. It's got an image of a, you know, a ruler on it or whatever, so it's defiled. But I'll tell you what, we'll exchange your money and we'll give you temple money. And again, they would jack up the rates and they would make merchandise to the people and all. And, uh, and so, you know, there was that process. Or, you know, again, if they had no sheep, they'd come, yeah, we can, we can buy a sheep, but oh, wait a minute, your money's no good here. We got to exchange your money. And then again, they would jack up the rates. And, and no doubt, I mean, I can only imagine that you know, the sheep, I go there without a sheep, and, and oh, yeah, I'll take this unblemished lamb, thank you. Uh, and maybe it was the one that they found unclean from the guy that was there, you know, just before him. And, oh, we'll take this off your hands for you. We'll sell it to the next guy kind of attitude. And that sounds horrible, but that's exactly what was going on. And the worst of all, probably, is that it's where they set up to do all of this business. They set up shop in a place called the Court of the Gentiles, a huge area. Hundreds of thousands of people could gather in this area. And God had said through the prophet Isaiah, hey, listen, Israel, I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, God's heart is to seek and to save the lost. Um, and, the, you know, Jesus said that in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. And so imagine now you are on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to meet with God. It's a holy endeavor. You are acutely aware of your sin, um, your desperate need for forgiveness. This is, this is what you understand. And so you come to God's house, and there God's priests are, the very people that are supposed to be helping you in your spiritual pilgrimage, and they're robbing you blind. And, and they're making a circus of what is supposed to be a holy time of communing with God. And this is why Jesus is so angry here. This is why he takes the time to, to make this whip and to drive everybody out. And I'll, I'll draw your attention back to verse 17 when he does these things, it says, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now that word zeal, really the idea is one of jealousy. Um, and uh, and uh, eaten me up, this literally, mean, this phrase means to consume uh, with, uh, with emotion. Um, and, and you put this together and the idea is that Jesus had a zeal for his father's house, and, and it was that zeal that caused him to react so violently, to, to be really consumed with this emotion when he saw the defilement of his temple. It's interesting, last night I had a, a dream 
And uh, you know how you have those dreams where, uh, where your spouse has been unfaithful to you, right? Every, you know, you, you, just, you get this random dream, there's this, and here's this guy, and he's hitting on my wife. And in my dream, I'm, I'm, I'm all up in this guy's face, and, and I'm just, you know, getting so angry. And I remember I, I woke up in the middle of the night, you know, this morning, uh, and, and, I was, and you're mad, you know, in, in real life. You know, it never, it never happened. Um, that's this idea of zeal. This, what, do you, what, what was I? I'm jealous for my wife, right? Not jealous in an unhealthy way. I'm jealous in a righteous way, right? Because this, this dirt bag is hitting on my wife in my dream, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm consumed with zeal for, for what? For my bride. Right? And this is the same thing that Jesus is, is going through. Now, this is the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. If you read through Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 11, you'll see that he had to do it a second time. Um, that that second time was also during Passover. It was right before his crucifixion. And um, that time when Jesus cleansed the temple, he quoted from Isaiah 56 verse 7 as Mark records it in Mark eleven seventeen. I'll put it. Uh, I'll put it up for you. Here's what uh, happened. It says, Then Jesus taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. You see, the, the point that Jesus, or that Isaiah was making, and that Jesus is emphasizing, is that the temple courts, specifically the court of the Gentiles, where they had set up shop and were making merchandise to the people and robbing them blind, that was supposed to be this place for all the nations to come and to pray. It was supposed to be a place of evangelism, a place where people could come and meet with God, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, that they could come together and meet with God and find the Lord. But Jesus finds this circus going on in the outer courts, and it made it impossible. I like what William Barclay said in his commentary. He said, in that uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering, prayer was impossible and those who sought God's presence were being debarred from it from the very people of God's house. And notice, the people are going along with it, right? Um, they, they, it never crosses their minds that their religious system has become toxic. And, and that it's poison, the one place where they can find hope, and, and that, you know, there's actually this whole system and process has become defiled. Uh, William McLaren said this, he said, being familiar to the people, it became legitimate and no one thought anything of it until this young Nazarene felt a flash of zeal for the sanctuary of his father's house. Well, let me hit the pause button right there. Let's go to application really quick, just at this point. Listen, let me remind you, Christian, that in Christ you are the temple of the living God, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul said, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. Um, Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaking, he said to us that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, 
children of God without fault in the midst of a, crook, of a crooked and perverse generation, here's the key, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What Paul is saying there, he's not saying work for your salvation, he's saying you work out your salvation. That as you're saved, it ought to translate into how you live your life and how you're, how you're manifesting what you say you believe. And that ultimately, as you do this, you are shining your light. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so here's the question today of application, is this you? Is this me? If we name the name of Christ as our Lord and Savior, hey, are the courts of our life oriented to shine to the lost or... When people encounter you, does your life interfere or distract people from God? Jesus told his disciples it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that he should offend one of these little ones. And that word offend there in Luke chapter 17, it's the word scandalon. Maybe you've heard me teach on it before. It's a trigger of a trap. You hear today, people will use the, the phrase triggered. They'll say, you know, oh, that person was triggered, right? And what, what uh, Jesus is saying here is that um, if you as a Christian um, are, are not letting your light shine, uh, are not allowing... Uh, Jesus to really make your temple holy and be glorified because because you know through sinful behavior and 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 all your your living other than that then what happens is you're triggering people uh, to 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 be offended by your Christian faith that's that's the idea here well we continue in verse eighteen it says so the Jews answered what did they answer they answered Jesus's uh, what he did there I mean he went in and just blew the place up right. And, uh, and so turned over the money changers tables, threw the money on the floor, chased them all out. Uh, and you can just imagine the scene, Jesus with a whip. Nobody touches him, by the way. Uh, he is large and in charge. And so the Jews answered this, and they said to Jesus, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? The, the, the idea is, what, who gave you the authority to, to come in here and to chase everybody out? That's, that's the idea. And so they're saying, we want to see a sign, uh, uh, some authentic, uh, authentication of your authority. And Jesus answered, verse 19, and he said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up? In three days? See, they're thinking in the physical. They're thinking of the temple that was supposed to point to Jesus in the first place. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the temple. That's the attitude and the idea. And that's what verse 21 said. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture uh, and the word which Jesus had said. And so they ask him, they, they say, hey, what sign do you show us? What, what's, what is the sign that shows that you have authority to do this? 
And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that, um, you know, Mary had asked Jesus to perform a miracle at the wedding of Cana. And, uh, and probably the idea was, hey, reveal yourself as the Messiah kind of thing. And Jesus told her, hey, my hour has not yet come to be revealed as the Messiah. And, and what Jesus, uh, you know, was, was referring to when he said, my hour has not yet come, was his crucifixion and his resurrection, the hour that he reveals his glory in that great act. And so what Jesus does here, he points to that sign. And, uh, and so he, he says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so what Jesus is saying to these guys, he's saying, look, the, the sign that I'll give you that shows my authority is my death, my burial, and my resurrection. Now, the Irish theologian Jonathan Swift, uh, several hundred years ago, he said, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And that's the problem here with these religious leaders. They have a belief problem, right? They're asking Jesus for a sign, but here's the, the truth. In reality, there's no sign that Jesus could possibly give them that they will believe. Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders in, in Luke chapter 16, and uh, he told them a story, a parable, earthly story of heavenly meeting. He told them a story uh, about a fictional rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. And not the Lazarus that he ultimately raised from the dead, um, but it kind of has a unique tie-in to that. But no, it was just a fictional story about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had lived his life in a way that really was an unbelieving life. Um, he was all about himself, all about his possessions and all. And here, when confronted with this poor man, um, he, he didn't help him in the least. Well, the story says that the rich man died and he went to Hades, right? The place of the dead. And Lazarus also died, but he went to be comforted in Abraham's bosom. And so you've got the rich man who is in Hades, the, uh, the parking place awaiting, <coughs> you know, eternal hell. And you've got Lazarus who's in Abraham's bosom awaiting Jesus Christ, who's, who's going to, to uh, take him there. He's the, the place of, of being comforted uh, in Abraham's bosom. And so the rich man, he sees Lazarus, and he begs Abraham. He basically says, hey, I'm burning up over here. Come help me. Send Lazarus to give me some water or something. Ironic, because he wouldn't send anything to Lazarus when he was poor and begging. But uh, he says, hey, Abraham, would you send him? I'm, I'm, I'm burning up here. Could I at least get some water? And Abraham tells him, look, there's a gulf fixed between you and us. You can't come to us, and we can't come to you. Um, and, uh, and basically, look, uh, you had your opportunity here on this earth to repent and to turn to God. You didn't do it. You died. It's too late for you. All that's left for you is judgment. That's the idea. And so then the, the rich man said, <clears throat> hey, would you at least go warn my brothers who haven't died yet? Here's how, here's how the text goes down uh, as uh, repeated in, in Luke 16. Jesus says, the rich man <clears throat> replied, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and they'll turn to God. But Abraham said, hey, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Jesus told this to the religious leaders, basically saying, Look, there's, there's, there's no sign that you're ever going to believe. 
And in fact, after Jesus told this story, he did raise a guy from the dead named Lazarus, right? And even then, the rich men didn't believe. And it's incredible that after Jesus' own resurrection, they still refuse to believe. Even if somebody rises from the dead, you guys aren't going to believe. You're asking for a sign. There, there, there's, there's nothing. You just will not believe. There's none so blind as those who will not see. And the irony is, is that when Jesus says this statement, hey, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, he's speaking about his death, burial, and resurrection, an opportunity for people to believe upon Jesus and be saved. And yet, they would use his very words there, not to be saved, not to believe, but they would use it as evidence against Jesus in his trial before he went to the cross. Mark 14, verses 57 and 58. Then some rose up and bore false witness against Jesus, right? Saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And then when Jesus was <clears throat> hanging on the cross... People walked by, and they threw the same accusation at him. Matthew 27, verses 39 and 40. It says, And those who passed by <clears throat> blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so Jesus says, basically, look, I, I ain't giving you a sign. I'll give you a sign of my death, my burial, and resurrection. That's the, that's the only sign you guys are going to get. And verse 22 is where we finish up. It says, therefore, when he, Jesus had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The key word in verse 22 there that we wrap up with, it's this word, believe. It's the word believe. Listen, lack of belief is what set the stage for the defilement of the temple in the first place. And as well, lack of belief is what separated the religious leaders from eternal life. You see, and it's the same way with us as we kind of unpack that thought. That, uh, listen, belief promises and belief prevents. It promises and it prevents. Belief promises the hope of eternal life. If you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins in your place, that he rose again on the third day conquering Satan's sin and death and that he has ascended into heaven and that he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. What that means is right now, this very moment, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you by name. And so there is a belief that gives us the hope of eternal life if we place our faith in him. But listen, belief also prevents, right? It promises the hope of eternal life, but it also prevents the defilement of our temple. How so? Well, James 2.19, James is having this, this, this discussion about faith versus works. And basically what he's saying is, look, if, if you, you're not going to be saved by your works, but if you have faith, your life will demonstrate your faith through the works that you do through the works that you do. And he says this in, in James 2.19, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Basically what he's saying here is, hey, you have belief that there's one God. Yippee-yay-yay. You know, hey, yippee for you. Um, but but the, the point is, is that the, 
the idea is, hey, just intellectually believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's not what saves you. Your belief has to transpire from an intellectual belief that Jesus is the Christ to, to uh, an embracing of a fully heart surrender to Jesus as Lord. See, the demons, they know that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't have the hope of eternal life. They are doomed to eternal damnation. Why? Because they have not surrendered and submitted themselves to the Lord. And so their actions are one, actions of continual evil. So it's not an intellectual belief that's going to transform you. And, and so the idea, the application here is that these religious leaders, the condition at the temple was defiled because really they had a belief problem. They had a belief problem. And it, had they, their belief been one of a true embracing and surrendering and a, and a reverence for God, then they wouldn't have allowed it to become the clown show that it became where it was defiled and they're making merchandise to the people. And so for us, we have to take a walk with this. Three questions as we close with, with this idea, this hard focus on belief. Number one, do you believe? And that question goes to, listen, is your belief in Jesus an intellectual belief in Jesus? Or has your belief sunk deep down into your soul to where it now is manifested in how you, how you behave. Remember, what you believe inevitably influences how you behave. And so, do you believe? Second question, does your life align with your belief? Just unpacking that first question a little bit more. And the third question, hey, what are the courts of your life? What are the courts of your temple? What do they look like right now? When Jesus comes to the temple here in our text, he finds it defiled, right? And he needs to cleanse the temple. Have you allowed Jesus to do that cleansing work in your temple? 